This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. There are several privileged positions from which to observe religion in America, but few of them can match a 40-year tenure at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and few eyes have been so perceptive as those of Martin Marty, for many years professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and a man who is perhaps better than anyone else in America, demonstrated the merger between academia and journalism. I'm looking forward to this conversation with one of America's most prolific historians. Martin E. Marty is the Fairfax M. Cone Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago. He taught there in the Divinity School for 35 years, and there at the university, the Martin Marty Center is a foundation for the study of public religion in America. He's also been a columnist for the Christian Century, the editor of the newsletter known as Context, and a contributor to so many other works. Beyond that, he's the author of over 50 books and is one of the most influential scholars in American academia today. Professor Marty, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. You know, I just have to tell you right at the very beginning that you have been a model for me in terms of a, a scholar who writes. And and yet, even as I say that, I, I just have to say that 50 books is absolutely beyond the estimation. And these are real books. These, are, these aren't just compiled volumes. When you began your uh, professorial career, did, did you know you were going to do this? I've let you in on a secret. I'm a hack writer, namely... I have never yet written a book that somebody didn't ask me to write on a theme that they asked me to do. Uh, I'm now retired, age 83, and the books are behind me so far. And somebody said, don't you have something in you that's just burning to come forward? And I said, I don't have to be asked. Um, and uh, people kept asking, so I kept answering. I lived under deadlines from 1956 until this year. Well, it is a, an enormous uh, body, a corpus of work, and uh, when, when I look at it, I just have to say, you know, considering all the other things you did, you certainly disprove the fact uh, that you can't write and do all these other things, and, and frankly, write quite well. The most satisfying thing to me and my deans is, at my retirement, they had reckoned that I had only missed a dozen classes in 35 years, so that was my fanatic point. <laughs> the academic president in me is even more amazed. Uh, that, <laughs> that is an incredible record. You are a scholar primarily of, of religion in the modern age, and in particular in America. And, and just given many of the things that we have to deal with uh, in terms of the challenge of modernity, how, how would you characterize the challenge to Christianity from the modern age as you have traced it in your historical work? I think the two things that we feel most are, one, pluralism. Most Christians from the age of Constantine until uh, really this century— spent their life living with people that are like them. My ancestors were Swiss Reformed, and they never met anybody in their life who wasn't Swiss Reformed. And uh, that was pretty true of almost everybody. There was a state church, established church, or a population um, overwhelmingly similar. They came in groups. And uh, you got your signals from that, and so there wasn't much problem of, quote, relativism or anything of that sort. You were off yourself. That's not possible now. Uh, my wife and I have, uh, down to great-grandchildren and their spouses, we figured out one day 10 different ethnic group backgrounds. Uh, there's 
very different, family reunions and so on. It's a wonderful family and it's friendly, but uh, meanings have to be translated a lot. So that's be the first, pluralism. The other one, I think, is um, implied in what we're doing here in Louisville. I'm in Chicago. This goes out all over the country or the world, who knows? And uh, that would be uh, speed of communication and, and a variety of communications. Um, in the church, for example, a pastor used to have a privileged position in the uh, whatever he said was what they heard. Uh, today, uh, they have tweet and Twitter and email and uh, every kind of voice along the way. And uh, sorting people's way through that, I think, is very important. Uh, I see this as a, both an enhancement and a distraction. Both of them are enhancements and distractions. God tends to give us things <laughs> in a way that can be used or misused. And just as pluralism can mean access to many other kinds of people that we wouldn't met otherwise, preach the gospel, interpret the gospel, um, be a good citizen. Uh, that's an enhancement, and yet I said it's a distraction that can lapse into relativism. And so with communication, uh, terrible, terrible things happen. All you do is have to look at your television screen or listen to uh, uh, popular music, and you can see pop culture is not on the side of the gospel, and it's very distracting. And yet, uh, if I want to talk to somebody in South Africa today, about a common Christian cause, uh, I just email and we're in touch, uh, and that's a great enhancement. On your first point, I'm reminded of Peter Berger's change of heart on the issue of secularization. He said that previously, virtually all intellectuals believed that secularization was the inevitable consequence of modernity. He said uh, that is probably not true, but it is true that pluralization is the uh, is the necessary, inevitable consequence of of modernity. Christian churches have responded to these challenges in different ways. Uh, you yourself are an ordained Lutheran pastor and have been for over half a century. Uh, you've been uh, one of the most keen observers of American religion. Uh, tell me, what exactly is is your description or diagnosis of what happened to the mainline, more liberal Protestant denominations over the last half century? Well, I think a number of things happened. Um, on, the, on the simplest terms, it's partly demographic, that is, uh, they chose to live in parts of the country that aren't growing, and therefore they didn't uh, move out with it. They're the ones who chose to have small families, and that makes a big difference. I was a pastor for 11 years at mid-century in the suburban boom, and uh, we had we grew very fast, and we also grew uh, with youth. I think I'd been there six, seven years, and we had uh, 750 adults and 1,000 children. Well, when I walk down the halls of almost any church in the main line, especially, by the way, Catholicism is very similar today, um, I walk down the line and see huge classes of confirmants and uh, people going through all these various rites, and uh, it's far fewer. Uh, mainliners, uh, again, like non-Latino Catholics, uh, marry late, um, and then there's dispersal. Uh, those were suburban boom years. I think the main line took for granted. I always describe the main line as the people who were chaplains to the establishment when there was an establishment. If you take the main line churches, this isn't often mentioned, but um, almost all of them have an ancestry of church establishment, which means that the clergy were paid out of taxes, the church building was sustained through uh, municipal funds, um, things were done in your favor, etc. And uh, so, well, I'm a Lutheran, and that meant Germany and Scandinavia, uh, Catholic, Southern European, um, Episcopal, <laughs> England. You could go right down the list, Presbyterian, Scotland. Uh, almost everybody had that in their background, 
and that meant, I think, that they uh, they coasted. Uh, you'd be called upon for civic duties. You'd be called on for interpretation of life, etc. And uh, I think they never caught on that there would be no church tomorrow unless they won their own kids and, and the neighbors. And in one of my books, I, I really picture the change coming. The first people to catch on to modernity in this sense uh, would be, for example, in the United States, uh, the uh, Great Awakening in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New England and so on. Somebody rides into town on a horse and uh, asks, are you converted? And the people have been listening to a divine who says, and now in the 17th sense, uh, it means uh, be behoove with us to do so and so. And they're all asleep and somebody else comes in and wakens them up and uh, says that your minister has to have this wakening up and you have to have this wakening up. And uh, so they learned that technique and I think that carries over. Uh, Southern Baptists are very good at it still, and uh, most of the people call it evangelical. I think there's some sagging among them, but uh, they did catch on to this. So I think that's the big thing. Um, Somebody once said, if you'd line up uh, latitudinally what we do know about uh, Episcopalians, if you'd ask the average Episcopalian, when did you last invite somebody to church, I think it came out to once in every 29 years. Or you can't grow in a competitive society that way. So I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. There are tremendous centers of vitality. Uh, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of bustling churches where they have 200 members or 2,000 members. Um, but I think as a cultural mark, um, up until the 1950s, uh, there were Jewish quotas at the uh, big universities. Today there are Jewish presidents at most of them. And... Um, and most of them, uh, if you take Asians and Jews, that's pretty well who runs a lot of the prestigious universities. So when you put together your boardroom, it isn't like it would have been 50 years ago. And the, the mainline churches and their pastors were sort of chaplains to that establishment. That day is gone. You've given a lot of attention to the, the theology of these churches and, and how that was also impacted by their response to, to modernity. And again, looking at the mainline churches, what would you trace as the theological trajectory that's uh, that's really marked the last half century or so? Well, I think they uh, again they they inherited the church and lived off it without thinking a lot about what you had to do about it. Um, no doubt about that. Uh, there was a great conformity to the culture, and when the culture shifted, they couldn't uh, shift with it. My own, I wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago on the Christian world. Uh, a global history, and I try to ask myself, what did everybody who's called Christian make central, no matter what else happened? I took a line from a book by James D.G. Dunn, uh, who asked of the New Testament, uh, well, he, he hypothesized there'd be great differences between being in Ephesus or Corinth or Rome or Jerusalem, um, and then, of course, as it spreads out into all the world, what did they all hold in common? And my overall observation would be, in his phrase, that, quote, the human Jesus is the exalted Lord. Um, if you have only the human Jesus, you can have uh, Unitarianism, etc., and you can have some of the mainline churches leading that way, and you can say real nice things about Jesus, and you can admire Jesus a great deal, but um, it's not lasting. There are all kinds of other people you could turn to for that. If you have only the exalted Lord, you're kind of agnostic. There are a lot of people who, who think... Uh, uh, that Jesus is nice, but he never really touched the earth that they know, etc. And I think that the uh, former hit a lot of the mainline churches. I don't think many of them were uh, 
off there in, in, in agnosticism. That's part of the New Age stuff that we have today, but that was not what hit the mainline churches. You have given a lot of attention to conservative religion in America, and I have to say, I think one of the functions you have uh, you've you've very interestingly fulfilled is, is is especially through the Christian Century and elsewhere is you you have helped to interpret uh, theological conservatives uh, to to the mainliners in a way that I, I found very interesting. Uh, many years ago, you took on the role as the director and and giving oversight to the Fundamentalism Project. And uh, that has led to probably more interesting conversation on the conservative side uh, of the spectrum than anything else you have done. So before asking you some questions about the actual experience of of supervising that project, let me just ask you, how do you define or uh, identify fundamentalism? Well, we had about 100 scholars working on it, and we had to do it all the time because we worked – we started with 13 religions. It was comparative study, not – that's Christianity, and I guess most of it wasn't Christianity. Um, and they had asked, what are we looking for? What we, our main instrument, it was a well-funded thing, uh, and we mainly sent them out with tape recordings and asked people. We didn't want to land on people and say, here's fundamentalism and you've got to fit, but rather, what, what do you think? And then they would deduce and bring together. And uh, what really emerged from that and became, by volume one of a five-volume work, our guideline is, um, every movement that got the name fundamentalism or its analogs in uh, Hebrew or Arabic or whatever, any, every movement that got that name uh, was a, either a church body, a religious body, uh, or a nation or a culture that was already conservative. We never found a, quote, moderate or liberal group that um, in any of the religions that turned fundamentalist. Uh, you were conservative. Secondly, um, you you had to feel challenged. There are an awful lot of conservatives in religion that didn't turn that way. Um, in fact, the, the word fundamentalism came about in a magazine, Baptist magazine, in 1920, when somebody said in the Northern Baptist Convention, I think it was called in, um, everybody in our church body uh, thinks they're conservative, but they don't. But they don't fight back. We're being challenged by evolution. We're being challenged by progressivism. We're being challenged by biblical criticism, and uh, they don't fight back. And I think that was the biggest single thing, that fundamentalisms are people who feel that when there is a, a threat, not a trivial threat, fundamentalists we studied were not people who were bugged and bothered by every little thing, but if they felt that the threat would come right to the heart of things, they had to fight back, and then you have to find tools for that if you're doing that. Um, I always use a kind of graphic image. I, fundamentalists do jujitsu on modernity. They take the force of what's coming at them. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier modernity and mass media. You'd think that mass media would be the best symbol of modernity, and yet the fundamentalists were better at it than any modernists or liberals were. Uh, why? Because it's what was the threat. It's what would have done them in, and they had to learn it to fling it back to the culture. And then, uh, the, the, of course, we never pretended, emphatically, we never pretended that any of these religions were uh, similar in content. We're talking about the forms that were there, and that's what we looked for. And I think that it, uh, as I've observed it through the years, it's very dynamic, as you well know, and everybody listening would know. Uh, it doesn't change. And I think the biggest uh, single change that came uh, is uh, the observation is that the United States is a very hard country to remain militant fundamentalist. Uh, Supreme Court cases come up now and then about it. They are, all, quote, all over the place. But I think what uh, they learned in the 1940s 
when the National Association of Evangelicals was formed, and I think Southern Baptist trend has been similar. Uh, somebody said uh, that real hard face, that real hard line, alienates people from Christ. It doesn't draw them. So we need a different pattern. And I think what's interesting to me was that as we study evangelicalisms, almost all of them could sign on the dotted line of any doctrine you'd come up with that the fundamentalists had, and yet they were very different pattern. A lot of it came through their colleges, um, quite a string of, well, uh, the Wheatons and the, uh, I guess I shouldn't go down the list, but there are scores of Christian colleges in which you learn um, of course, all the Christian teachings, but you also uh, have a climate in which you can do more radical stuff. I was at a party one night with a very major uh, teacher in uh, one of the evangelical colleges, and somebody said, you know, you could be teaching anywhere. You could be at Princeton. You could be anywhere. Why are you choosing to be there? And she said, because when you get to the real hard stuff, you don't have to hold back. Now, what do you mean? She said, well, we can teach Nietzsche more freely in our campus than we could at a state school where people say, how can you be talking about the death of God? Uh, they know the way we're talking about it is, I won't say a greenhouse sheltered, but it, it, it stays off the worst winds. So I think that the intellectual side of it changed greatly. I think we saw it first in, in my own field, uh, American religious history. When I started out, uh, if you weren't at Harvard, Yale, Chicago, Princeton, or something, you weren't uh, even reckoned with and very few evangelicals. Um, well, today, last 15, 20 years, if I list the top 10, um, probably eight of them would be uh, evangelicals. The Mark Knowles and the Skip Stouts and the uh, uh, Boomhoffers, and uh, I could go on and on. Um, I, I think there was a tremendous change there that that makes a difference. And therefore, I think that uh, any of people like myself who try to tell two stories will notice those changes. And I think also to try to make uh, make uh, bridges. I don't think that you can collapse one into the other. They can influence each other. But um, there are also a lot of things they can do together. Many of the social service things I'm interested in do that. And I'll give you just one quick illustration. Uh, up till 20 years ago, the environmental movements, ecological movements, uh, movements about climate change, movements about conserving, um, Many, all fundamentalists, I guess I'd say, and most evangelicals, were mistrustful. Uh, either the world will end soon, said the fundamentalists, so why bother? Or the evangelicals would say, well, too much of this language comes from uh, New Age and so on. And then all of a sudden, they restudied the Bible and decided from page one on, uh, it's concerned with the natural world around us. And... Um, once they catch on, you've really got something going. So I think that that's been one of the major trends. There's an other side to it, of course, and that is the evangelical and pop side of them are very open to pop culture, and they can very easily corrupt their message in the impulse of getting more people or getting more excited, and pretty soon the gospel comes in second to entertainment. But that's a different topic for a different day. <laughs> In all likelihood, many evangelicals first came to know of Martin Marty through the Fundamentalism Project, and it became a matter of some controversy among conservative Christians in America, wondering if it was at all fair that conservative Christians would be put alongside conservatives in other faiths as if it's one thing, just in different forms. 
I'm looking forward to pressing that point with Dr. Marty as we continue thinking in public. Dr. Marty, in, in looking at the materials collated by and analyzed by the Fundamentalism Project, uh, I, I think one thing that that, uh, that strikes me, and you, and you dealt with this earlier when you spoke about the issue of, uh, of fundamentalists using uh, modernity, uh, the, the way it was defined as, as more or less a resistance to the modern age, what rankled many conservatives beyond those who would identify as fundamentalists is that there appeared to be in that project the insinuation that fundamentalism is a phenomenon that's just found a different variance. And, uh, and for instance, uh, evangelical Christians respond to that by saying, well, you know, uh, this is not driven by the same precise kind of concern. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, just looking at it from your perspective, having directed that project, is fundamentalism one thing, you would say, that has various manifestations related to these faith traditions? Or, or is it, upon analysis, uh, different uh, in terms of its organic reality? Oh, I think it's very different. Um, what, we're, what we were dealing with were, I guess you'd say, the external phenomena, the things that uh, bear in upon the people and so on. But uh, I learned very early, there used to be a magazine called Saturday Review, a wonderful magazine that, like so many other secular things, didn't last as long as the Church did. So I have to remind people there was such. And I wrote an article must have been around 1979, 80, let's say, um, right after the Iranian Revolution. A lot of people, in fact, those at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Boston uh, got us going on this fundamentalism project because we always kidded about the Bostonians had never met a fundamentalist. Uh, today they would know more, but back then they never met one. Uh, and they were just scared silly, and you could use the words Khomeini and Falwell, and you could strike terror, and they said, we got to understand this stuff. Um, well, uh, I wrote an article, and I, in that article, hundreds of words apart, I made a reference to Khomeini and a reference to Falwell, and before long, online, uh, Martin Marty, who thinks that, uh, uh, that Khomeini and Falwell are the same thing, dot, 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 uh, anything but that. We think you can understand Let's just say um, in the laboratory, cellular structure, you learn how different each cell is while you're seeing what cells have in common. If all these cells are doing this and then one of them turns cancerous, uh, you learn that through the comparative method. So what we would do here, I'm not trying to find a metaphor in cancer, but that just came to my mind as a comparative method. You could say seed corn or anything else would work. Um, you, you compare so that things stand out that wouldn't stand out otherwise. Uh, one of our studies was on family structure. And uh, on, uh, one of the chapters was uh, a professor from New Zealand who was the world's expert on the family structure of fundamentalist Sikhs in the Punjab. And he wrote about it, and we learned a lot about it there. Uh, Helen Hardick here wrote about uh, the Japanese we don't think they were real fundamentalists in Japan because they don't really have texts, but uh, hardliners. And uh, you compare them to the people that Nancy Ammerman, who was the captain of our American team, uh, she wrote about Bible believers in Massachusetts. Well, when they get up in the morning, they do almost nothing similar to what those other two do. Um, and yet, uh, let's put it this way, the sexual revolution, when it hit so suddenly in the 60s, 
you don't hear much about it in the 1950s in the boom of suburban religion. 60s, it really hit. And uh, I knew many people who were mainline, moderately conservative mainliners, and uh, they'd be talking, and, well, my my daughter's pregnant, but she's not married, or my son's living with so-and-so, and uh, rise in divorce rates. You saw all those things. And more or less, the people in mainline and uh, Catholic practice away from the bishops sort of rolled with a punch and said, well, we don't want to lose our children. We don't want to alienate. Uh, we'll just live with it and make the best of it and affirm what we can. And I think that when that hit the fundamentalists, they all said, well, we've got to do something about it. So you get movements like uh, Focus on the Family and so on that uh, say, we'll build, we'll build barriers. We're not going to let all these things happen to us. I think that was a big difference. And that's true, I think, in almost all of the versions of the fundamentalisms that we studied. Uh, but I, we never want to create the impression that uh, that they would be similar. We didn't have fundamentalists in the study group by their choice. Uh, that is, uh, we we had everyone who wrote, wrote out of their tradition. I mentioned Nancy Ammerman out of the Southern Baptist tradition. Uh, the Ayatollah Abdulaziz Sachadina, <laughs> out of his Saudi Arabian uh, Islamic background, none of them would have been classed as a fundamentalist, but they uh, they would understand it, and they weren't. We also didn't want people who were hostile to it. Some people who leave a religious movement spend their whole life taking revenge on their spiritual past, and we didn't want that either. But they knew it uh, inside. They they knew the music of it. They knew things that don't get written down too much, and. Uh, when they would get together, uh, we would have twice a year, we would have meetings open to the public, and numbers of fundamentalists would show up and be there. I, I spoke at Moody Church not long ago and to a group of pastors, and there was Vernon Lyons, who was probably the hardest line uh, Protestant white fundamentalist in the city, um, and he was always friendly. We'd compare notes and so on. Uh, we had very friendly greetings and uh, and kept on it. Well, if he ever thought that I thought that uh, his Baptist church um, substantively had anything in common with Islam or any of the others, uh, that would have broken off. So uh, no, there's a big distinction there. I think every fundamentalist uh, in any religion who would read those books could learn something about themselves in the way that you can learn if you have both a window and a mirror. But uh, if you only think it's a mirror, then I think we would have failed. Well, I have all of those volumes, and as a matter of fact, my Martin Marty section in my library takes up a matter of feet, not inches, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I, I was looking in preparation for this conversation uh, back at several of your books, and, and I came across something that I, I, uh, I, I just thought would, would lead to just the right kind of question. At, at, at one point, you described yourself as ambiguously related to evangelicalism. And uh, I think I know what you mean by that. But when you look at evangelicalism in America today, what what do you see? Okay. Well, first of all, what ambiguous, I used to kid about it, that I would go to gatherings. There was a stage in the 60s and 70s when the Billy Graham people were reaching out in new cultural directions, um, new ways of involving laity, business people, etc. They would have these conferences of 60, 70 people, and uh, they'd introduce everybody and they'd say, and... Uh, this year, our non-evangelical is Martin Marty. And I would say, uh, I'm the only person in this room as a member of a church body that has the word evangelical in its title. <laughs> uh, there's something's going on there. Um, evangelical is of the gospel. And uh, I'd like to think I'm dead on on that. I'm ordained. I took an ordination vow uh, 
to read the scriptures, uh, make use of the Lutheran confessions as instrumental tools along the way. And uh, I feel very much at home with that. And uh, most things that evangelicals are about uh, would be right down my line. Uh, evangelicals who have uh, apocalyptic views, second coming, uh, that kind of thing. Um, every communion service, uh, my wife and I are there. At one point in the service, we shout, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. But we don't give dates to it, and we don't know the patterns. Um, but um, we're at home we, with, with all the creeds. So all those ways are, are to me, just evangelical that would be there. Now, the, uh, when I'm with evangelicals beyond that, I think they, we make a great deal more than most of them do, not all of them, of um, infant baptism. Uh, so many years ago, well, 1976, uh, Bill Moyers was doing a program uh, on uh, the rise of Born Again, uh, Jimmy Carter running. Uh, I, I talked to people in the media who'd never heard of anybody being born again. In fact, on your campus, I was there in the spring of 76, and I got a phone call from Newsweek. I won't use her name. Uh, Marty, uh, what do you make of this crazy uh, potential Democratic candidate, Jimmy Carter? I said, well, why do you call him crazy? My my boss of the Christian Century is his Illinois chairman. <laughs> and he said, well, he claims he had a personal experience of Jesus, and he's born again. And I said, well, so what's so strange? And she said, well, I, we asked around Newsweek, nobody here is born again. Nobody here knows anybody who's born again. And I said, I'm only a few hundred miles from you on a Louisville campus, and everybody here is born again, and everybody they know is born again or will be when they get a chance to get at them. Uh, well, that, the Moyers want to do a program. Uh, Senator Hughes of Iowa, a lot of prominent people are coming on that way. And then he said, are you born again? I said, yeah. He said, when? February 26, 1928. And he said, uh, Oh, come on, you're not that old. He had a kind of Baptist 15 years to his reckoning. Uh, well, uh, we believe that you are born again in baptism, um, and that it, and you're born again every day. Um, we are uh, faithful Lutherans, and it says in the last page of our hymn book, uh, every day in the morning upon arising, you make the sign of the cross. As a token of your having been baptized, you repent, uh, and you look forward to the new day in prayer. And you end, end it that way in the evening, too. Now, that's quite different, I think, from the uh, the meanings of baptism that come with uh, Anabaptist and Baptist traditions, uh, the born-again. But um, the end product, we seek the same. But we used to play a game. If your church body or your confession were to disappear, what would you be? I'm kind of kidding. They say, oh, I don't know. I'd be either a Roman Catholic or a Mennonite. And somebody said, well, those two couldn't be further apart. Well, but I like some aspects of Catholicism, uh, development, growth, uh, comprehension, um, sacraments, but I also like the ethic and intensity of the Mennonite. Um, and I think that the goal is to bring these two together, and it's going to be done very different ways, partly doctrinally, but mainly culturally. And I think that uh, uh, I could be right at home if, if I preach on a chapel on any of the campus is called evangelical. Um, I have no problem at all, and I think I get accepted along the way, and I'll go to a religion class, and we'll cover nine-tenths of the same things. Um, I think the intensity of the conversion experience is the biggest single difference that is, that I, that's experienced. And I wish it were otherwise. Um, I've often felt that since 
mainline, and again, everything I've said about mainline, I think everything I've said would apply to the non-Latino Catholics in America, too. If you study their statistics, yes. if you study their attendance, they're a very similar kind of thing. And both of them have been uneasy about the idea of um, taking your voice and uh, witnessing and trying to get somebody to follow it along the way. They have lessons to learn there. You know, on the uh, on the issue of evangelicalism, I go back to the 1970s and the 1980s, and uh, especially with the interest in what was then called the New Religious Right with uh, 1976 Newsweek, which you mentioned perhaps even in this very article declaring in a cover story the year of the evangelicals if this was a tribe they had just discovered. Uh, you have looked not only at the past, but you've been able to be uh, very insightful by pointing to the future. If, if you were speaking to American evangelicals, what would you say would be the greatest challenges that evangelicals are likely to face uh, looking at the decades ahead? I think probably the biggest one is that they are now involved in an, in a, in an entanglement with culture, just like the mainline used to be. They've become the chaplains to a huge part of the culture, much of the South, much of the West. Uh, if you just look at the polls, they're very close to a lot of that. And without realizing it, you sort of... Uh, affirm it along the way without realizing how far you've gone. I'll just take one illustration. Uh, I don't know how controversial it is, but it's a point I think is very big. As far as my understanding of the prophetic Judaism and then of Christianity through the ages is, the fundamental thing about us is that we are social beings, we're communal beings. Uh, people of Israel are saved as, as a people, uh, always. Uh, Jesus and the disciples form a new community, and in Christian terms, Paul's terms, we are members one of another. Well, um, I think there there are analogs to that in other parts of culture. We are social beings. Whenever I hear the hyper-individualism of, you know, we made it, we don't have to share. Uh, if we choose to share, we can do it voluntarily, but don't let them tax us, etc., if you're poor, it's your own hard luck. You did all that. There's a huge amount of, I guess I'll bring up the word without wanting to invest it too much, um, the uh, free market, which has many blessings, uh, can also be consuming, and the gospel gets identified with it, um, or the word capitalism would be. Well, uh, yeah, how did the gospel and how did the Christian church get along from... 33 A.D. till 1776, when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, or the 1500s, when John Calvin wrote things. We get by with many different economies, and uh, and we're going to have to keep doing that. Uh, I think entertainment is another big thing. We used to kid about it, that uh, when Elvis Presley and types came on the scene, um, evangelicals, and not just fundamentalists, were massively opposed. It was... Uh, gyration of the hips was very sexual, the uh, materialist imagery and all that was it, and a few years later, all these were being replicated. Uh, I covered some uh, events in which uh, uh, pop rock Christianity would be presented on stage, and, uh, you know, you have thousands of kids there, and I was glad to see them. Um, the words were about Jesus instead of somebody else, but you wouldn't know from the words. The costumery was just the same. The biggest single difference was there was no pot and marijuana in the air. Uh, I'm not knocking at all. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, uh, we, we play that kind of music. We let our kids play that kind of music because, uh, here, let me uh, let me have you hear what they'd be listening to if they didn't have this. And after 
eight measures, I would say, oh, no, <laughs> I, I agree with you. Let's use that alternative. But there's a huge element of the entertainment world, uh, the uh, materialist world, the uh, economic uh, uh, individualist world that I think uh, is quite different from ICF 58 and uh, all those places where we're called as a community to deal with our problems together. I, uh, For a secular analogy to this, uh, some time ago on NPR, I heard a, a, a physician. I don't know whether he's a person of faith or not, but he was really doing wonderful things. Retired, could have sat back, but instead he's offering free services to people who can't afford anything. And finally the uh, person said to him, why are you doing this? And he said, because I'm a citizen. And I think that's a fundamental thing that we don't get in our debates of the far left and the far right today. Um the far left obscures the uh, independence of the individual, and the far right has the individual determining everything or not recognizing the place they're in. Now, that's not, you don't have to be Christian to be that. You can just be a good citizen. But I think that the evangelical Christians today are probably as admired in that culture as, um, as the main line was in the 1950s, and they couldn't find a voice to engage in critique of the culture, the suburban culture of the day. 5,000 articles and 50 books later, what has been the biggest surprise of your research and reflection on religion in America? I guess it's durability and inventiveness. Um, I never was wholly in the camp of uh, the secular motif that you talked about with Peter Berger. I coined a word which uh, nobody in the world picked up. It's not a very beautiful word, but I described our culture as being, quote, religio-secular. You can't untangle it at all. Uh, well, a quick illustration comes to my mind. Uh, a scholar you would know, David Martin, a British sociologist, way back in the 50s wrote a book on, uh, on eliminating the concept of the secular. Uh, I don't know anybody more than Peter Berger who knows what secular is about, but it never has it all to itself. And uh, he said, I can, in, in three words, I can show you how... Uh, it doesn't fit. Texas Baptist millionaire. The Texas Baptist millionaire didn't want the preacher ever to mention oil depletion allowances, um, but he but he was uh, wholly accommodated to that. But he also wanted uh, uh, what it meant to be a Baptist. Well, I think Americans have a funny way of combining these two. I did write one of those fifty-two books I called was called the Modern Schism, and what interested me was how in on the continent of Europe. The breach came in the 19th century. Radical terms. I call them the bearded god killers, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Darwin, Freud, uh, the bearded god killers. And we didn't really have any. Uh, who's, who's really scared of those that are around now, the new atheists? Uh, but they, they did it, and boy, you had to choose all the way. In England, uh, the word I used was everydayishness. They made a million compromises to new ways of life, stopped going to church, stopped anything else. In America, we did what I call a controlled secularity, and I think that is uh, uh, still strong, uh, that we um, we open the floodgates and let certain kinds of it come through, and then other places we hold it back on it. And, and therefore, uh, when I deal with um, Africans, they, they wonder how secular and pagan we are, and when I deal with Europeans, they wonder why we are so uh, religious. And I think there's something of the genius of the American unfolding is that uh, I am very concerned about the uh, losing in Catholicism and all forms of Protestantism of the of the younger generation. 
uh, maybe two generations now, uh, when I look around a Catholic meeting or a mainline Protestant meeting, and uh, plenty of evangelicals are worried about it too. Um, and I, I think we have to find ways that the next generations can can keep this interplay going. So that's been a surprise that I was told the world would be either secular or religious, and it, and it isn't. Uh, on a global scene, Christianity never had it so good. Uh, huge growth in the poor parts of the world. And yet, when I look at Western Europe, it never had it so bad because it's hard to retrieve uh, when you lose uh, hmm. the loyalty of people. Yes, as, uh, as the term post-Christian now comes to affirm. You know, uh-huh. when you mentioned David Martin, I, I recall the fact that, uh, that he once responded to the idea of American exceptionalism on this uh, by saying that the problem with a lot of the claims about American religion is that a pollster in America hears a, a man stub his toe and use the Lord's name in vain and thinks he's found a believer. And uh, <laughs> there's a sense in which I'm afraid sometimes he's right. Yeah, no, he, he was very adept at coining these things, and he was very perceptive about it. Um, I think uh, when, when he was talking so much about secularization, um, I remember we were at a meeting once in the late, end of the 60s at Princeton. They got together everybody who had written, quote, a bestseller, everybody from the death of God over to a new revival of religion, and sitting in an orchard with him. And he said, oh, Marty, my next book's really going to surprise you because it's called A Rumor of Angels. I'm really convinced that the transcendent order uh, impinges on our world in ways that you can't obscure it. And uh, I think he, he pretty well held with that, no matter where else things took him. And uh, again, the world moves on beyond the Peter Burgers and my generation, but uh, I think he put a good stamp on it along the way. Professor Martin Marty, I just have to tell you, it's been a sheer delight to be in conversation with you today, and I can just look forward to the next time. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Enjoy the chance. Well, I can tell you one thing. I hope that if I live to be 83, I'm able to think and to speak so perceptively as Martin Marty did with me today. When I think about that conversation, I'm struck by the fact that we're not only talking to a man who has over a half century of academia and scholarship and 5,000 articles and 50 books behind him, and he's a mind very much still at work. And that's what makes the conversation even more interesting. It is an incredible responsibility to teach in the field of American Christianity or religion in America at a place like the University of Chicago Divinity School. Martin Marty is himself an exemplar of mainstream Protestantism, of one of the old mainline churches. He is an ordained Lutheran clergyman. He writes with a very keen confessionalism. He knows who he is and what he believes. He has an interest in, you'll remember his term, that ambiguous relation to evangelicals and conservative Christians, but he writes about us as one who is also distant from us. It's fascinating to be in conversation with someone who has been studying conservative Christians, among others, uh, for the part of a century that basically marks the very beginnings of the evangelical movement until the present day. I found several points of conversation with Dr. Marty to be particularly interesting. Uh, one was his, his diagnosis of the response to modernity. After all, we look at mainline Protestantism, and conservative Christians will look at that and immediately say the first reason for this decline is theological. 
It was theological compromise that led to the evacuation of these churches. Dr. Marty wanted to speak of demographic issues, and we don't want to deny those. As a matter of fact, when we look at evangelicals today, evangelicals demographically are following very many of the same trends that the mainline Protestants experienced just a couple of generations before. We, too, are having fewer children. And after all, when it comes to the population growth in this country, it is not amongst the part of the population that is at least already more likely to be evangelical. That population curve is now trending towards ethnic minorities where evangelicals are going to have to devise new ways of being missiologically significant and evangelistic if we're going to reach those persons with the message that is most important to us. But you know, when he spoke of evangelicals, he went back and spoke of the mainline Protestant uh, denominations as having been the chaplains to the establishment, as he said, when there was an establishment. Well, there still is an establishment. It's just a different kind of establishment. And when I asked Dr. Marty about evangelicalism, he said that the evangelical churches and denominations are now to some extent the chaplains to a different establishment. Now, I think that's a very important word we need to hear because the danger is always that we will be co-opted by the culture to which we want to have the relation of being some kind of respected chaplain. And what we're facing in America today, whether you want to call it pluralizing or secularizing or modernizing, is a reality in which evangelicals had better be very theologically sure-footed or we will find ourselves doing exactly what the mainline Protestant denominations did just a couple of generations before us. There's a whole lot going on here just in terms of the language that we use, talking about fundamentalists and evangelicals and mainline Protestants. But that's the kind of distinction that really is important if we're going to talk in a meaningful way about the shape of Christianity in America today. I love the way Martin Marty is able to make huge academic concepts very tangible. I love the words that he coins, such as my favorite, everydayishness, uh, when it comes to, uh, to how, actually, uh, that faith is lived out in, in everyday life. And if the everydayishness, after all, becomes more secular, well, that's a very clear uh, proof and demonstration of the fact that uh, something very important in terms of our theological conviction has been lost. You know, in hearing Dr. Marty speak, there's a great deal of candor, you know, just speaking of the fact that one of the reasons the mainline Protestant denominations declined is because they no longer were inviting anyone to go to church with them. His remark about the Episcopalians who invited someone to church once every 29 years, well, that's another warning to us that the same thing can happen among us if we are not very, very careful. He's very honest about the intellectual shape of, of the modern age. When he spoke about the bearded God killers, Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and Darwin, he's speaking about those who really set the stage for so many of the conversations that are continuing today. He spoke, of course, about uh, other things that I think are, are very instrumentally important to us. Uh, when he spoke about evangelical institutions and evangelical colleges and uh, when, when he spoke about uh, what it means to retain a very clear sense of distinctiveness. I really appreciated what he had to say about the professor in an evangelical institution who said, look, we can teach the hard stuff because they know where we are. I think that's one of the most important things that evangelicals need to hear. We are able to take on the hard issues. We are able to talk about whether it's nihilism or, or existentialism or just about anything that could, could confront us today. We're able to talk about it at full strength precisely because there is a prior commitment that is public and assured to the faith that is, after all, once for all, delivered to the saints. Martin Marty is one of those observers of all things who's able to distill and bring things together. I really admire 
the, the way he is able to synthesize, to bring these things together and to explain them. Even where I disagree with them, I have to look and say there was a very intelligent mind looking at the data, trying to see the patterns and to understand what these things do mean. That's one of the responsibilities we have. We, we, we need more who are like evangelical Martin Martys, able to look at the world, able to see it for what it is, able to trace the trends, able to know the history, and able to interpret not only the past but the present as we look to the future. You know, a conversation with someone like Martin Marty is just one of those unusual opportunities that reminds us that out there in the world today, there are many, many creative minds, insightful, intelligent minds who are saying things that we need to hear. As another final word, I really appreciate his distinction between looking through a window and looking at a mirror. I think one of the problems with many evangelicals is that we spend too much time looking in the mirror, looking at, at how we see ourselves and perhaps even asking the question how others see us. We actually need to be looking out at the world, coming to terms with belief systems and worldviews and philosophies and ideologies and doctrines that are taught by others in order to understand what we really must be saying and how we must be engaging the modern world. It's important not only to see, but to know how we indeed are seen. Finally, I am reminded of the sheer gift of conversation. Well, what a joy it was to be in conversation with someone that, uh, that has the insights and the experience, the analytical ability of someone like Martin Marty. But I want to remind you that God has made us conversational creatures, and you will have the opportunity today and in successive days to be involved in conversations that can likewise disclose and to be opportunities for the disclosure of things that are most important to us. And most importantly, of course, that means gospel conversations. Of course, it's also important that we think in public. We really learn by the process of watching other minds in action. And our minds themselves become sharper by thinking in public. Before signing off, I want to remind you about a very special opportunity. I want to invite you to join Mary and me and other friends of Southern Seminaries. We take a cruise to Alaska July 30 through August 6 later this year. The cruise promises to combine absolutely breathtaking beauty with the opportunity to share a Bible conference experience aboard the ship as we travel along the coast and see some of the most beautiful displays of God's glory in creation. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Remember my website at albertmuller.com for a wealth of information that is available there for you. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmuller. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.